0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Romans, a familiar passage if you were with us last week, verses 21 through 26 of the third chapter of that book. If you have uh, forgotten to bring a Bible with you, you can find one hopefully in the seat in front of you, in the pew in front of you. Uh, this morning, that black ESV Bible is going to have a Romans chapter 3 and the verses we will be reading on page 941. I have never really trusted Netflix Uh, It's not to say that I haven't subscribed to it. Uh, My wife and I subscribed to it back when it was just DVDs coming through the mail. And we've continued to do so. But if I was ever to invest in a company, I don't think that I could ever get around to doing that with Netflix. It seems like a weird thing to invest in. They basically stream mostly other people's content. The stuff that people actually log in to watch off of Netflix is very rarely Netflix's own material, and usually it's somebody else's. Yet, all the same, it shows what kind of an investor I am because they are now one of the largest media companies in the world. And from 2010 through 2020, they were the highest and top-performing stock on the S&P 500. So do not listen to me. Don't take investing advice from me. It's rightly said by many that Netflix doesn't have market competition, that even though there are other streaming services that have removed their own content from Netflix, like Disney+, Plus, Netflix isn't really in competition with them. The true enemy of Netflix is not Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or Discovery Plus or any of the other pluses. The true enemy of Netflix is simply sleep. All they want you to do is to keep watching. They would like you to binge until your eyes fall out or bleed from lack of uh, care and concern. There's recently been a trend against this, but this is one of the reasons why when Netflix dumps a series Uh, of TV or anything else onto its streaming platform. They just give it all to you all at the same time so that you will binge watch through that season. When I was a kid, Snickers were a nickel and we couldn't do that. You had to wait a whole blessed week if not over the entire summer for that cliffhanger to be solved, right? So long was that break that we didn't even remember what we were hanging on the cliff about. So they had to tell us before that show, they would say, as previously seen on whatever the case might be. Now, because many people have asked me to not binge sermon you, we will do this kind of as a weekly affair. And so we don't have six hour sermons, but we're going to take it a bit at a time. It is good for us to remember where we were previously because we're in the same passage. We're only like halfway through it. So it helps for us to kind of say, previously, on the days of Paul's life, we recently last week, talked about how God's righteousness was revealed. Paul is turning towards the salvation of the world. He's turning towards the salvation of those who know Jesus Christ and about how that righteousness has been revealed. That is not, I don't believe, a gift that is given to us, but a revealing and a manifestation of God's true righteousness in Christ. How Jesus is because of his being God in nature and truth able to reveal the full bounty of God's righteousness on the cross. And yet, we've not actually talked about how that righteousness applied to us works for our salvation. And we get to today. We will speak about how our salvation came to be and how the work of Jesus Christ accomplishes that salvation. If you would, let us remind ourselves of the verses that we are speaking of this morning from Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. And there Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. This is the inerrant, infallible, and holy word of our God. As we think about our salvation this morning, let us first think about the pronouncement of our salvation, the pronouncement of our salvation. When judges bang that gavel, they pronounce a sentence, and God has pronounced over those who believe in Jesus Christ that they are justified in him. We talked last week about how the righteousness of God, at least according to this passage, is not the gift that is given to us, but there is a gift given to us, and it is quite clearly that we are justified. We are justified by his grace as a gift. And certainly I would suggest that most people in here think that they have a pretty good understanding of what justification is, but nevertheless, it's important. So let's take some time so that we're perfectly clear on what that pronouncement actually means. First thing I want to talk to you about is the importance of the doctrine. And I want to tell you that it's not the most important doctrine in all of Christian faith. It is quite important, but it's not the most important doctrine. The early church took up vast majority of its time and thousands and thousands of pages of writing about the nature of who Jesus Christ was and the nature of God in the Trinity. They thought that these were the things of first importance. The early church gave almost no paper, almost no ink, over to the issue of justification. Augustine set the stage for it, but even in Augustine, it wasn't central. The Middle Ages tended to pick up what Augustine wrote about, but they used it almost everywhere. They applied it to a host of different things. It wasn't really until Luther pressed down on justification that it came to the forefront of what we consider to be incredibly important. However, while it is likely not the most important thing for us to consider, the very fact that we're Protestants argues that we think that it's not the least of the important things. Justification is truly important. We ought to have flexibility when it comes to understanding it. Not all of us need to have precisely the same view. You can read good scholars. You can talk to good men and women of the church who believe in justification like you believe in justification through faith in Jesus Christ and not agree with them precisely on everything that they say. And that's okay. I disagree with many theologians over what justification is, although I will tell you I'm probably in the majority. But we can also bend it so far that the thing just snaps in half. And we are no longer dealing under the umbrella of faith, but when we push justification too far, when we don't understand it rightly, we can completely devoid ourselves of salvation in Christ. After all, this is not just what Protestants believe Catholics have done, but it is quite honestly what Catholics believe Protestants have done. It cuts both ways. The importance of the doctrine is therefore not the most important, but certainly important enough for us to get right, because it does impact the gospel. But the doctrine can be confused. Let's talk about the confusion of the doctrine. Throughout the years, justification has been widened to accommodate almost any issue and every doctrine in our salvation. This is because our salvation is one act in Jesus Christ. He died and rose again. And so all of the ways in which we look at these, the salvation that Christ has given us, we can talk about the doctrines of justification and union with Christ and the election of God. All of these things are different ways of speaking and thinking about that one act. But because it's one act, Sometimes theologians get confused, and these doctrines start to overlap one another. This has led to a lot of confusion and error. Some frankly treat justification like it's the entirety of our salvation. It shouldn't be treated that way. Catholics have done this. Protestants have done this. The problem is on both sides. Some have linked election with justification. Some have tried to speak of justification in terms of our free will. Catholic theologians quite openly and honestly will link justification to sanctification, which is a huge problem in their thinking. Some have also linked it with baptism, simply the idea of penance. A major problem in most of our circles is linking it with our union in Christ. It's not that these things aren't true. It's not that these things don't have part to play. It's not that they don't bump up against one another but they ought not be confused with one another. When this doctrine is stretched to fit these very important things but very separate things, that stretching leads to distortion and the distortion leads to confusion. So what is the nature of the doctrine? Justification is essentially what we would say is forensic. And you know that term from watching Law & Order SVU or SUV or SEC, whatever it is, you know, the 85,000 seasons of that, that you can probably watch on any of those streaming devices if you want to live in the next three years in your TV. They call it forensic science because it's science devoted to courts and law. It's not science devoted to research. It's not science devoted to learning something about the outside world. It's science devoted to evidence and collecting evidence and how that is presented in the court of law. Same thing is true with justification. It's a courtroom word. It's about court language. When justification is forensic, we simply mean that it is the verdict that is passed down on the defendant. When he stands before God, there is a verdict that is passed down, and if he is clear of the charges, then he is said to be justified. Therefore, it is not quite quite, about a person's actual righteousness or personal righteousness often. Not to say it's not in our case, but it's not always used that way. For instance, if you were accused of stealing Ezekiel's sheep, the question before the judge would not be, are you a righteous person? The question before the judge is, did you steal Ezekiel's sheep? And you might be a scoundrel of the worst kind, but you also might not have stolen his sheep. So if he finds that you didn't steal his sheep, he would say, you are vindicated, you're justified, you are righteous in this matter. So, what is the case at hand for us? What is the thing that we are being judged on? One of the problems that we run into is our courts deal with a number of different charges, and there are varying penalties for those charges. Dealing with drug offenses is different than dealing with traffic court, which is different than dealing with stealing, which is different than dealing with corporate fraud. And the varying penalties that come along with that, perhaps it's just a monetary fine. Sometimes it's going to be, you've served time. You get jail time but that's with parole or jail time that can't have parole there's all kinds of ways that these things get confused but in God's courtroom there is really only one question being asked of every single person that steps into it and that is does this person deserve life or does this person deserve death this is the primary way in which God speaks about his judgment he looks at Adam in the very beginning and he says you cannot take that Because if you do, you're going to serve three to five in a federal pen. He doesn't say that. He says, if you take it, you will die. Continually throughout the law. The emphasis is not on you'll just be cursed and have kind of a rough life. He says, you will die if you do this. Highlighted in things like Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rule. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Not just live by them and walking in them, but the gift of life will be given to him. This is mirrored in something like the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 11, where the exact opposite is said. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? If you sin against me, you die. If you are unrighteous, you die. That is the question before us. When we stand before God Almighty, the question is not, did he do this or did he do that? Was he a covetor or was he not? The question is, does this person deserve death or does this person deserve life? The things that we have done simply become evidence and support. Because we've all done wrong and immense wrong at that. Because we have a litany of sins before God. The sentence that would come down for us is that we deserve death outside of Christ in our natural state. And yet God says here that you are justified. You are not going to get death. God doesn't accept bribes. Our justification isn't deserved based on records, but the verdict of not guilty is given to us solely based on his grace. And your accuser, Satan, can bring up all the evidence in the world that he wants to, And he can talk about how much of a scoundrel you were and how you stole Ezekiel's sheep. He can talk about all of the wrong and rancid things that you have done. And God will say, none of that matters. He deserves life. She deserves life. How does this happen? And that leads to our second question or second point this morning. The process of our salvation. The easiest way to answer the question of How does this happen? It's simple. Jesus died for you. He is your substitute. The process is simply the fact that this holy man, perfectly righteous, sinless in all of his ways, has died in your place. Paul highlights this in a couple of different ways when he says, You are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Let's think through a couple of those words. First, being redemption. The word has been long associated with the exodus of people from bondage in Egypt. We can think of redemption in that case more along the lines of deliverance. God delivers his people from the evil that surrounds them. He delivers his people from the oppression and the slavery that they are in. A host of verses in Deuteronomy talk like this, and look at just one, Deuteronomy 15, 15, where God says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is then applied throughout the course of Israel's history, not to the nation as a whole, but even to individuals and their deliverance from those who oppressed them. So for instance, Psalm 26, David writes, Or the psalmist writes, Do not sweep away my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Deliver me is what he's asking. It is used as a description of how God will bring all of his people back from the exile. In other words, redemption or deliverance is something that God gives us as a picture in Egypt and then he applies to us individually and corporately throughout anything that separates us from him. He delivers us from those things. This redemption usually comes with a cost that is paid. Sometimes it's spoken of as a ransom. If you speak like this in Greco-Roman culture... They're going to understand that redemption is something that you do when you buy the rights to a slave. You redeem that slave and you set them free. We can push this language here theologically too far. It doesn't appear as though Jesus is buying us back from Satan or anything like that. But the idea of a cost being associated with this is quite clear. And here the cost is nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. This delivers us just as slavery from Egypt, those who sought the lives of the Old Testament saints, bringing those people back from foreign lands, we too are delivered from that which has separated us from God. Paul also says that he put him forward as a propitiation. I'm sure everyone is very thankful that the ESV uses the word propitiation here so that you can use it and sprinkle it throughout your everyday language so that it will be helpful and and gaining you friends. People will love you if you use this word. It's a very technical word. It uses basically just like the word redemption. It has a meaning culturally when Paul used it, and it has a biblical meaning, and the two are not terribly similar to one another. Nevertheless, I think Paul means probably both. Using this, as he does, just blankly out there, if you were a Greco-Roman person and you heard the word that is translated propitiation here, you would immediately think of satiating the wrath of a god. The gods were angry at you, but you did a sacrifice, and now, well, they're not so angry anymore. This is the appeasement of God's wrath. The judge himself is satisfied with the payment for our sins. Please understand, when we speak like this, you need to hear it is the appeasement of God's wrath. It is not the appeasement of the Father's wrath. It is not the appeasement of the Spirit's wrath. Okay? It is not as though the Father is up in heaven, super angry at all of you, and the Son is like, no, it's okay, Dad, it's okay, calm down. It is the anger and the fury and the wrath of God that God himself propitiates God puts an end to his own anger. Biblically, the word is linked with something called the mercy seat. This comes up in the book of Exodus when the tabernacle is being formed and he is, the Lord is revealing to Moses so that Moses can then reveal it to Aaron exactly how he ought to make it. In Exodus 25, we read this. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length And a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on each on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you. So he says, Listen, on top of the ark of the covenant, you're going to put the testimony in there, and you're going to make a top for it. That top is going to have these two huge angelic type creatures, and their wings are going to hover over it, and they're going to cover it. It's important that we realize that those cherubim are there because God is drawing your attention back to the Garden of Eden. When he kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he puts there a cherubim with a flaming sword so that no one may enter again. And even here, the cherubim are protecting the very presence of God from sinful men and women. We read in Leviticus something that then brings Many of these ideas that Paul is expressing here, together in one place. The most important section of the Pentateuch is the middle of the Pentateuch. The book in the middle of the Pentateuch is Leviticus. The chapter in the middle of Leviticus is Leviticus 16. It is the day of atonement, where the people have their sin atoned for. This is part of what Aaron is supposed to do, the high priest. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all of their sins, he shall do it for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. The sprinkling of blood was meant to purify the Holy of Holies, because the Holy of Holies was present on earth, where people lived, and people sinned, and therefore defiled it just by its very presence with them. And because God will not dwell in impurity, it needs to be cleansed, and it can only be cleansed. Sin can only be cleansed by having the penalty of death put on it. The sacrifices here in the 16th chapter of Leviticus are four. There's a bull, there's a ram, and there are two goats. The ram was completely burned before God. It was a burnt offering before him. It is certainly to be a picture of God as an absolute consuming fire. That that which took and bore iniquity and sin before him would be completely burned by his wrath. One of those goats had Aaron's hands placed on it as he symbolically placed the sin of the people of God on it and then sent it to the wilderness. We know this as the scapegoat. taking the sin of the people far away into the wilderness. One goat was slaughtered, and its blood was used to purify and to atone for sin. Same with the bull, slaughtered, to purify the seat and to atone for sin, to redeem people. This reliance on Leviticus by Paul, and I think it's clear that Paul is really focusing on this, given these two or three important words, brings out the nature of why Paul mentions By his blood. It is by his blood because there is blood everywhere in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And why? Because blood symbolized the death of the animal, that their life was no longer in them, there was only death. The atonement for sin can only be gained with the penalty of those sins being realized. Because they sinned against the Lord, they ought to die. And these animals represented their death for them. For Paul, nothing that Jesus did was behind closed doors. He was put forward as a propitiation. It was clear and public what happened to him. Why does Paul speak like this? I think that Paul is pulling these words together to remind us of a varying and and differentiated way of the way in which God's sacrificial system was meant to work. There's bulls and there's goats and there's lambs. There's all kinds of sacrifices going on. There's redemption from Egypt that's being pointed towards. Why are all of these different ideas being talked about with Christ? The point is that God looked forward through the foundation of time. And he knew what his servant was going to do. And he said, I need to explain what it is that my servant's going to do. But no one picture is ever going to capture the glory or the beauty or the magnificence or the details of what he is going to accomplish. So I'm not going to give them a picture. I'm going to give them 20. I'm going to give them 30. I'm going to give them as many pictures as they can handle so that by the time Jesus comes, they will fully understand what he has done for them. Jesus, he is the deliverer who brings us out of our slavery to sin. Jesus is the bull and the goat who is sacrificed to purify us with his blood. Jesus is the scapegoat who takes our sin far away from us. Jesus is the ram burned under the wrath of God's anger. Jesus is the full sacrifice who pays the penalty for our sin, but he is also himself the high priest who offers himself in this sacrifice. And not only that, but he is here, according to Paul, the very mercy seat of God, where God meets with man. None of these pictures on its own could possibly capture what Jesus has done. And frankly, putting them all together will still fall short of truly explaining to us what Christ has done. But it's better to have them than not. Paul says that is what Christ has done for you. These Old Testament sacrifices were done year after year after year. The statute was that this was not a one-time sacrifice, but this was to be done every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And yet, because it was done year after year, there was this understanding that this was not truly the removal of sin from people. It bought them forgiveness for a time, though. But Jesus' sacrifice is greater and better because he paid once and for all for our debt. He silenced the wrath of God on our behalf, did so publicly, and did so decisively. Now all of these themes are found throughout the Old Testament, uh, are brought together probably in no better place than Isaiah 53. And listen to these very, very familiar words. Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we ex- These are really familiar words, but please understand what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is looking at the sacrificial system that is set up in Leviticus. And he's saying that can't be all of it. There's got to be something more. Because we can't go on making sacrifices year after year after year after year and not being changed. There's got to be a greater sacrifice that is to come. A true substitute for us. That true substitute must be a man. So he takes the language of sacrifice. He takes the language of the system that has been set up for him and he applies it to this servant of God, the Messiah who was to come. There is no lamb, there is no goat. There is no ram, there is no bull, there is only a suffering servant, a son of God. He is like a lamb, but he is not truly a lamb. That which these sacrificial animals undergo, he undergoes. That our transgressions might be paid for, our iniquities might be taken away from us, and that by his death we might be healed. Certainly Isaiah sees something of what the author of Hebrews sees fully in hebrews 10 he writes this since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near otherwise they would have otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed would no longer have any conscious Uh, consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year the fact that the high priest has to make these sacrifices every year indicates that your sin is not completely and utterly removed and taken away the author of hebrews finishes that thought by saying it is impossible for the bulls of blood and goats to take away sins Those bulls and those goats were given not as the true realities, but as God honored them by looking forward to the true reality that Jesus Christ would lay down his life as a substitute and a sacrifice for his people. Why does God overlook our sin? Why does he justify us? While we are indeed worthy of death, God cannot convict us of that death because charging us with that death is meaningless for that death has been paid further god will bring no charge against us because his wrath has been abated that leads us to the third point and the final point this morning that is the purpose of our salvation While we are indeed the beneficiaries of salvation, Paul mentions that there is even a grander purpose for the work of Christ, and that is the display of God's righteousness. The first time that Paul mentions this was done, he says that it is because God passed over former sins. This doesn't mean that sins weren't indeed punished in some respect, but that they didn't meet their full punishment. Even the sacrificial system, the way we've described it, The very weakness of that system screams that the idea of the sins of the saints of the Old Testament were never truly dealt with by that system. They were never truly relieved or truly punished. God overlooked their sin in some way, postponing their payment until the real time. Paul then says, But now, at the present time, he shows his true righteousness. First, that he might be just. That is, that everyone might look and see that justice has actually and truly been done. God is not some sort of hypocrite who speaks to you about having equal scales and speaks to you about caring for the poor and speaks to you about caring for the sojourner. But when push comes to shove, he is unwilling to do what needs to be done to carry out justice in you and for you and with you. That he just sort of looks aside and pretends like justice isn't there or that justice shouldn't happen. God cannot simply ignore justice when he wants to. He can't say, there must be justice for thee, but not for me. Rather, God does something even better than that. He shows himself more just than anyone. He is the just one. So much does he care about justice that rather than just forgiving our sin and on the basis of our repentance and faith, simply allowing us to be with him, he comes to bear the penalty for our sin. How incredibly does God steadfastly hold to his justice? He will not let sins pass, even as he desires to not let them overcome us. So therefore, he himself comes to take the penalty that he himself must and desires to give. Who else can possibly be this just? Who else can love justice that much? Who else can show themselves so steadfast to hold to what is good and right and true? Even people, when they go against the law, you break the law and you say, well, I could have gotten away with it, but man, my, I was just convicted by it. So I'm, I'm going to go down and I'm going I'm to tell the court, I'm going to tell the police officer I was, I was guilty. We might do so under the strain of conscience. But we do so as those under the authority of the law and guilty before it. God shows himself as the just one. For he is not under any such authority, nor is he under any such obligation. He does it freely on his own account because he loves justice to be upheld. But he is not just the just one. Paul says that he is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That is, for those who rightly see this justice carried out in Jesus, God can therefore rightly justify them. And I do mean rightly justify them. It fits with his justice. It's not a shunting aside of his justice, but an actual extension of his justice. It would be flat out unrighteous for God to penalize those who trust in Jesus. Because he would be penalizing their sins again. The death has been paid. There is no death for us now. That would mean that the offense has been doubled. God would have required more than a full payment for sin. Such is, on God's own words, unjust. The law sets out a principle called lex talionis. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What that means is not when you lose a tooth that you get to take it from somebody It simply pithily sets out the idea that any sense of justice must be in ratio to the offense. The punishment must find itself rightly in balance with what has happened. This has already happened in Jesus. This is why John can talk about the forgiveness that we get from God using the words faithful and just. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say He's merciful and gracious to do it. It's an outstanding claim. It is just for God to forgive your sins because Christ has paid for those sins. God is being faithful to His word to forgive your sins because Christ has paid for those sins. This is precisely the problem that we have talked about. It's found throughout the Old Testament. No better place to see this than in the book of Ezekiel. Where again, God making known in this public demonstration of his righteousness, of his name, clearing of his name, comes to the foreground. Ezekiel 36, verses 20 through 28. God talking here about how he has moved his people and exiled them to the nations because they are sinful before them before him he says this but when they came to the nations wherever they came they profaned my holy name and notice how they profaned his holy name they could have been as sinless as anybody when they went to those foreign nations because listen to how they profaned his holy name because people said of them these are the people of the lord and yet they had to go out of his land. They, the people are going to look at you. You're going to go to Damascus. You are going to be taken away to Babylon. You are going to be exported from the land. And people are going to look at you and be like, aren't you the people of the Lord? Didn't he promise you that land? Where is his promise now? Your God isn't good to keep his promises. He couldn't keep you in the land. You defile his name. Ezekiel goes on to say, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate, vindicate, holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. How can God hold accountable sinners and yet fulfill his promise? This is what Ezekiel's holding out. How can God hold them accountable by sending them into exile and not have that drag his name through the mud and still uphold his promises? Or in reverse, how can God uphold his promises to give them the land and put up with their sin and be just? He is both in Jesus Christ. For all the fullness of divinity dwells in him and it is in Jesus that we can see that God is the just one by no means letting the guilty go unpunished, and yet at the same time being merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And Paul writes these verses. He obviously writes them sort of abstractly. They are abstract. It's good, as it were, to s- step back and to think in general about our salvation and what Jesus Christ has done for us see our salvation and how it has been accomplished. But we are wrong if we think that we ought to leave it there. This is not some sort of philosophical case study. This is not a science experiment where we get to look at our salvation and poke it and prod it and see how it reacts. Rather, it is a salvation that has been wrought to us by Jesus Christ. Not simply to be talked about or theorized about or have philosophical discussions about, but a salvation that is to be experienced. Friends, we ought to dwell deeply and longly about what Jesus has done for us. Not what he has done for all of humanity, but what he has done for you. The American system of justice has checks because we are quite... Partial people. The judge cannot, in any case, have a material interest in the outcome of that case because he would be prejudiced. Neither can anyone in the jury. But realize before God that God is the judge, he is the prosecutor, he is the offended party, he is the jury, and he is the executioner. Friend, you have everything against you. The one who is offended... Is the one who is trying your case, is the judge of the case and the executioner of the case. If this happened in the American court system, if you stole from me and I was the judge, the jury, and the executioner, you wouldn't get out. I guarantee you that. I would get my pound of flesh. What chance do we have before God? And God is true and righteous. Nevertheless, the offended loving justice so much that he pays the penalty for the offender, and he loves the offender so much that he pays the penalty for the offender. It's not abstract. This is for you. It's for your sin. It's not for Paul's sin in general, or it's not for the the nation of Israel in general, or for all of humanity in general. Friend, it's your sin. Your name was spoken by God, written in his book. Your life was spared by God. Your penalty was paid by God. Your salvation is found in God. We can likely do no better than to dwell on the rich mercy of God, not in abstract terms, but in how he has been faithfully merciful and just with us. Not generally over people, but with you and with I. In Galatians 2.20, Paul, uncharacteristically, almost nowhere does Paul speak of God's love for him. He's very easily speaking of the love of God that has been wrought in Christ, but almost nowhere do we hear Paul speaking of God's love for him. And yet, in Galatians 2.20, we read this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let those be the words not just of Paul, but of each and every one of us this morning. Friends, live by faith in the Son of God his justice can and through that will be applied to you for your salvation let us pray father we praise you as a god who is merciful and just kind and true who else is like you who else does what you can do what more can we do than to stand in awe of you giving up our praise and wonder at a god Who would take sinful people, wretched and wrecked, ugly and torn by their sin, and make them precious in his sight? Who would forgive our sin even while we were still sinners? Let our praise be true, our God. Not just in what we say of you, not just in the content of our praise, but in our very saying of it. May our mouths speak of the abundance of our hearts we pray these things in the name of jesus christ our lord amen